Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon the generous financial contributions of our listeners in order to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you. Uh, would you please uh, support Fighting for the Faith financially by joining our crew or sending in a donation to uh, support us financially? You can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. Click on the Join Our Crew button. That's a mere $6.95 a month. Or if you'd like to make a flat contribution, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button or making your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and sending it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Thursday, July 15th, 2010. Oh, man. Much I can talk about, so little time to do it. Okay, this one's in. That one's in. This one, I don't know. Making last-second changes here. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseborough, and I am your servant in Jesus Christ. And this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which is to help you to think biblically, to help you to think critically, and to compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. And um, as I've said before, I am not exempt from this um, exercise. I, you know, I, I'm a sinful human being. And I'm sure that I have said things that may not completely jive with Scripture. That being the case, you, my dear listener, are well advised to compare even what I say in the name of God to the Word of God. And if I am in error, please feel free to take me on on biblical grounds. Would love to hear from you regarding those things. Uh, okay, lots going on here today. And uh, let me see what I've got going on here. I got an email from Ben Mordecai, and uh, he is married, and he says he works in a cubicle, and so he we're going to graduate the title. He's no longer young Ben Mordecai. I will uh, 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 basically give him full adult privileges, and uh, <laughs> and he will now be Mr. Ben Mordecai. Anyway, I just want to make sure I'm... I'm <laughs> Oh, man, that's terrible. Anyway, I got an email from him, and I thought it was really good. He was uh, chiming in on the Evolutionize Your Life um, sermon. This this is the one that kept me up at night after I reviewed it. It was very, very disturbing. And uh, and Mr. Ben Mordecai has something he would like to say about this, and he has sent me a, a, a nice email with some very salient points that I want to share with you today. And then, uh, boy, talk about controversy. Uh, Stephen Furtick over there at Elevation Church in uh, Charlotte, uh, he, um, his latest sermon series is entitled F-Bomb. Yeah, F-Bomb. And, um, in quite a bit of controversy because, um, uh, as part of the kickoff to the new F-Bomb sermon series, the, uh, uh Elevation Church worship team uh, during the church service, played the uh, well, played a, a cleaned-up, Christianized version of a song written by Rage Against the Machine entitled "Bulls on Parade." Now, 
I'll be blunt. I <laughs> I had never heard of really I had never listened to Rage Against the Machine or heard the song Bulls on Parade until yesterday. And uh, and so uh, as a result of it, there was uh, some confusion on my part and uh, regarding what the lyrics were that were being sung in the church. And so I had to kind of clean everything up there and uh, and make some amendments to my uh, Museum of Idolatry exhibit. All of that uh, understood and cleaned up now. Uh, we're going to take a look at this. Uh, really, the way I look at it, there's a couple of things going on here. And uh, I want to spend a little bit of time kind of unpacking this whole F-bomb sermon series. And I, I will not be reviewing the entire uh, sermon today. I, I just want to let you know that, 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 that I, for reasons that are my own at this point, um, I will not be reviewing the entire sermon. But we'll be listening to the first few minutes of it in this hour uh, because I think once you hear the first few minutes of it, you're going to kind of get a real quick uh, radar fix on what's going on here, and uh, and th- th- there's really th- there's there's many levels to this particular onion. Let me just put it that way. And then uh, then we, we got other stories we want to talk about. Uh, CNN is uh, they're co- they've actually covered now the multi-site movement. We'll take a look at that CNN article uh, that talks about the uh, multi-site movement, and then. Um, Boy, this is hilarious. Um, the way the media is handling and discussing uh, Matt Harrison's uh, victory as the, uh, you know, as the president of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod, I, 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 I <laughs> the Huffington Post. Let's just put put it that way. They are they are they are absolutely. Um, shrill about in in a bad way it's like oh no this is terrible and the the <laughs> the way the huffington post covered the story the headline read conservative insurgency topples missouri synod president <laughs> so i uh, just want to let you cons- uh, cons- confessional lutherans out there know uh you are now by the huffington post you are now officially considered to be um Conservative insurgents, yeah. Uh, Noted, no, I mean, notice the propaganda. I mean, er, when we talk about insurgents, you know, when when we whenever the United States goes to war and we have insurgencies and things like that, they're generally bad things. And so, I mean, the way the Huffington Post is covering the story, you would think that the Taliban had taken over the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Um, let's see here. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't know how we have time to get to all of this. Um, depending on time. Uh, there's a story I want to read from the Washington Post about telling the truth that there are Islamic terrorists. Uh, I thought this was an interesting piece written by a rabbi that was worth passing along to you. And then our sermon review in hour number two today is from Epic Church in Fullerton, California. And the name of the sermon is um, Defining Leadership. Yeah, I had no idea that, that leadership was like one of the big burning issues when it came to sound biblical doctrine and what should be preached from a you know, Christian pulpit. But this is more evidence in my mind that um, that in the seeker-driven movement, what we're experiencing there is some kind of a leadership cult. Um, yeah, anyway, so we got lots of ground to cover today. So uh, make yourself comfortable, uh, you know, kick up your feet if you can. If you like to multitask while listening to the program, no problemo. 
Of course, if you want to enjoy an adult beverage, we don't have a problem with that. And fuzzy bunny slippers are absolutely encouraged. However, if you're in a warm weather climate right now, we advise against that. Okay, um, let's uh, switch over here. And uh, let's, I got an email from Ben Mordecai. So. Right, Ben Mordecai, who is a uh, longtime listener to Fighting for the Faith, uh, he writes, um, he says, I just got done listening to the Evolutionize Your Life sermon from C3 Exchange. Now, C3 Exchange, if you're not familiar, is that it's formerly Christ Community Church, and they've changed their name to C3 Exchange, and uh, they got rid of their cross. And uh, the, the Evolutionize Your Life sermon, I consider that to be like a groundbreaking watershed uh, sermon, and the reason why is because what I'm, what I think we're seeing in the seeker-driven movement is the creation of a new postmodern form of liberalism, and um, and what has happened to C3 Exchange, I think, is exactly what we're going to see happen to all the major seeker-driven churches. It, it, you know, given enough time, it's it's they're already on their way towards this. It's just that C three Exchange got there quicker than everybody else, and I think they're kind of a, you know, they are the logical consequence of these uh, seeker driven methods. Anyways, um, so uh, Ben Mordecai writes. He says, as some background information for your listeners, I began listening to Fighting for the Faith during the second week of production, and since then I've been listened to every single episode ever produced, except for the most recent few. So, I mean, Ben Mordecai, I, here's a funny thing. He probably knows more about this program than I do. And uh, and so, uh, I, you know, oddly enough, there are some listeners that uh, can quote me better than I can quote myself. Yeah, it's kind of strange. Anyway, um, Ben says, he says, I have to say without any reservation that evolutionize your life is the single most satanic and wicked sermon I have ever heard. Thank you, Ben. I couldn't agree more. He says, considering the hundreds of awful sermons you have reviewed, this one goes so far beyond them that I am terrified of what may come in the future. This may sound like an overstatement, but bear with me while I try to defend my decision. Go ahead. The single sermon uh, is wrong in so many areas that I feel the need to put the uh, perversions into categories in order to do justice to its level of depravity. And so what Ben has done here is he's he's uh, there's four major categories that he's uh, made comments on regarding the evolutionize your life sermon. The four categories are religious, scientific, philosophical and ethical. In the religious category, uh Ben notes he says uh you know the, the it was uh, Michael Dowd is the guy who gave the sermon evolutionize uh, your life. He says that uh, he is repulsed by the Bible. He calls his own heart God. Yep. He is pan. Uh, he is uh, a pantheist. Thinks the universe is God. Yep. He's a universalist. Denies hell and heaven. Yep. He explains the gospel in nearly perfect clarity, but only to mock it for being unnatural. Y- yeah, I noticed that too. He thinks that God only exists as a personification. Mm-hmm. He considers any written source he likes scripture. Yep. He refuses to differentiate between killing and murder in the Ten Commandments. Mm-hmm. And he embraces sexual depravity. 
yeah, that that's just in the religious category. <clears throat> ben notes in the scientific category, this regarding Michael Dowd's sermon, he says, uh, he claims that we share the same matter as the stars when there's no evidence for this claim. Mm-hmm. He exalts the new atheists as modern prophets, although they have contributed no real contributions to modern science whatsoever. Great point. Um, he has no formal education as a scientist, but claims to be guided by it more than any other system of belief. Mm-hmm. He believes in a universal heart when there is zero evidence for such a thing. Yeah, that's a great point, too. Now, in the philosophical category, Ben notes, he says, um, Michael Dowd says that the, uh, that science tells how things are and what things mean, but science cannot explain meaning. Yep. Uh, holds no consistent epistemology. That's correct. Claims to yield most heavily to science, yet draws irrational conclusions that reach much further than empirical evidence would demand. Great point, by the way. Lauds subjective personal interpretations, then proceeds to say that while all people are included, not all ideas are. <laughs> ben, I detect that you have spent uh, some time uh, really tearing apart this sermon. Good work here, by the way. Uh, Michael Dowd mentions identification with Buddhism, yet holds uh, extremely anti-Buddhist views of the world and life, etc. That's correct. And then in the ethical category, uh, Ben writes, he says, uh, Michael Dowd considers sin to be good because it originates in our instincts, Uh huh. condescends towards ancient people as if they are savage and subhuman. Great point there, too. And mocks and belittles every Christian ideal he can imagine and then lies by saying that he is a Christian and that it's not bad to hold the belief. May God have mercy on his soul. And that's exactly right, Ben. You know, when we review sermons here, part of it is warning for the church, but the other part of it is is to stop and pause and pray for these men and women who are deceived and deceiving. For there is no joy, none. There's no glee, no joy, no satisfaction whatsoever in these people entering eternity as heretics. We fear for them, and we love them enough to pray for them and to preach the truth. Ben, this was by far your best email. Good work. Thank you for writing it and sending it along. Keep them coming, and I will no longer call you young Ben Mordecai. You have have officially gotten rid of that particular title. Congratulations, you've earned it. Okay, moving along here. Um, I don't have any uh, music for this segment, but um, yesterday at the Museum of Idolatry, late in the day, I posted a um, a, a video, a, a Vimeo video from Elevation Worship. And uh, this past Sunday, uh, Elevation Church, this is Pastor Stephen Furtick, embarked on a brand new uh, sermon series entitled F-Bomb, okay? And um, they, as part of their worship set, they played um, a Christianized and cleaned up version of the Rage Against the Machine song entitled Bulls on Parade. Now, so that you can kind of get a feel for what's going on here, what I'm going to do is I'm going to play some of this song. Now, good news is is they've cleaned it up, and the F-bomb that really does actually 
occur in the song is not in the song. So uh, <clears throat> anyway, uh, you get what I'm saying. Here is um, Elevation Church's worship band um, and their Christianized version of Bulls on Parade. here for a minute they kept the uh the chorus uh they rally round the family with a pocket full of shells and i did receive an email from a listener that uh, told me that a pocket full of shells is basically um kind of the gangster way of talking about bullets okay Just a quick question. I mean, if I can, you understand what these people are saying in the song. I I had to listen to it like three or four times to to really kind of catch what they were saying. No facade, my best friend in life, he's here to the end, forgiveness for everyone, all you gotta do is play, we rally round the family, with a pocket full of shells, we rally round the family, with a pocket full of shells. Okay, enough, wow, that hurts, okay, um, yeah, that's, I, I cannot find a single occasion for which I would want to listen to that music. Okay, um, now, that, so what they did is they took this song by Rage Against the Machine. Apparently, they, there's a guy in this band called Skillet, and he's not exactly known for his um, Christian behavior. Um. Okay, so we've got this song that when you look at the original lyrics, it's, um, yeah, this is not <laughs> something that you would want your young child singing to you, um, or you, yeah, you understand what I'm saying. It's uh, far from a great example of Christian uh, 
um, morals, uh, ideals, or anything of that nature. And so Elevation Church took this song that has a very uh, well-known F-bomb in it and then performed, you know, Christianized it, cleaned it up, and then performed it as part of the kickoff to their F-bomb sermon series. And you're thinking, F-bomb? Yeah, see, here's the deal. Um, I mean, obviously, we're dealing with some kind of a double entendre or some kind of bizarre innuendo here uh, because everybody who lives in the United States, I don't know if this is slang in in any of the Western English-speaking nations, but here in the United States, F-bomb basically means saying the F-word. When you drop the F-bomb, you drop the F-word. That's the first thing that comes to your mind. And so if I were to say so-and-so dropped the F-bomb, you would say, oh, wow, what made them so upset that they would do that? And we'd be able to have a conversation. So here we've got a sermon series named after a slang term that conjures up the, um, well, the F-bomb. So, and, well, here's the deal, um... When you go to the Elevation Church's website, you can download the sermon for yourself. You can see that the um, the F-bomb sermon series is subtitled The Forgiveness Offensive. <sighs> you know, uh. So, Furtick has uh, hijacked the term F-bomb and, and wants the F no longer to, well, at least in the sermon series, he's going to let the F stand for forgiveness rather than the other thing. And all of this is, of course, part of the whole seeker-driven, purpose-driven methods for doing church. This is racy. This is innovative. This is cutting edge. And this is making the church relevant, okay? Which then leads to what I consider the right question to be asking here, because here's the deal. As I've looked through the comments and in the emails that have come in from people as they react to what they see and what's happening there at uh, Elevation Church and what Pastor Furtick has, has done, many Christians are scandalized that this is happening in a church. So we got, we've got a problem there. Um, the question that really needs to be asked is what business do these types of songs have being quote performed in a church service, God's holy word and his holy bride don't need filthy gutter music and double on tundra and innuendo in order to make them relevant. And the way I see it is is that by resorting to these really, you can almost say they're salacious, uh, but that's not even the right word. But I'll just stick with it right now. Um, really, these really racy methods that conjure up stuff that's not even biblical. I mean, but, you know, conjure up really just bad things. The body of Christ and God's word doesn't need to adorn itself with these things. And when the body of Christ adorns itself with these kinds of methods, it really makes the body of Christ look like a a, a harlot and a whore. And over and again, when you read what happened to Israel in the Old Testament, I mean, I am struck 
especially in the books of Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, I am struck by how many times God, in talking about wayward Israel, talks about Israel and says that Israel was guilty of whoring, W-H-O-R-I-N-G, whoring, like a prostitute. And I, 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 I see what comes to mind when I see F-bomb and, and hear these guys doing this really hard kind of gangster rap thing in, the, in a church, Christ and him crucified for our sins isn't the thing that comes to mind. God's holy and righteous law doesn't come to mind. The peace and fruit of the Spirit doesn't come to mind. If anything, it's the opposite. I mean, I, I, I don't want to go to a church where what is conjured up in my mind is my own sinful filth and that being the hook and the attraction as to why people would show up at the church. It, it That seems to me to be 180 degrees backwards. And I think it would be wise to to stop and take a look at God's word and really come to grips with what James, this is the apostle, uh, this is Jesus' brother, the apostle James, in his epistle, chapter 4, verse 4, come to grips with what he meant when he said, you adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred toward God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. I, I think we need to stop and really take a hard look and really figure out what it is that, that James there is talking about. I can think of other passages, a little leaven leavens the whole lump, things like that. It, it's time, you know, it's time to stop and say, is this really what Christ has called his bride to be doing? Dressing like a whore in order to attract the world? I, I, I think there's something seriously wrong here. Now, in the case you're holding out and going, well, Chris, didn't you say that the sermon series is, is subtitled The Forgiveness Offensive? Yeah, it, it is. And so with that in mind, I would like to play for you the first few minutes of um, this, this, this first sermon from the F-bomb sermon series. And I think just within the first five minutes, you're going to see what the big problem is here. I don't think it needs too much explaining. So uh, without any further ado, I'm going to play this from the beginning. I want you to even hear the intro uh, to this sermon from the uh, Elevation Church podcast. Here we go. Thanks for joining us for the Elevation Church podcast. Today's message is from our current series, F-Bomb, a series about forgiveness. Here's today's message from Pastor Stephen Furtick. Well, this is a message that I've been waiting to preach to you for a long time. It really began at the top of 2010, this has been a big year for me. I turned 30 in February. and Okay, ask yourself, who is he talking about and where are we beginning? Are we beginning in God's Word or are we beginning in Pastor Furtick's psyche? 
around that time, I guess maybe five weeks before my birthday, God started dealing with me. I felt like he was calling me to fast for 30 days. And reluctantly, I agreed to obey the Lord. And I, uh, I entered into a period for 30 days of, of fasting. And uh, it was pretty challenging and demanding. And um, yet I felt like it's what the Lord wanted me to do to prepare for the next 10 years of my life. And specifically, um, turning 30, I felt like God was speaking to me that some significant things were going to happen in my life this year and that he wanted to prepare my heart for what he wanted to do in my life, that he wanted to give me more impact for his glory and he wanted to do some new and unique things in me in my heart and my personal relationship with him. And so drawing aside to fast and to pray and to seek him for 30 days seemed to be a great way to really humble myself and depend completely on God. During that 30 days, there were only a few people, probably 40 or 50, including our staff, who knew that I was fasting. And the reason I told them is so that they could support me and help me. And people would ask me along and along during that period, um, how do you feel? I would say, I feel terrible. I'm hungry. I'm weak. And, and, uh, but praise the Lord. <laughs> I would try not to complain, but it's kind of hard. And, uh, they'd ask me, well, are you getting any kind of special visions from the Lord? Like any kind of crazy revelations, like some kind of explosive dynamic encounters with him. And I'd say, not really, you know, I'd, I'm having some good times of prayer and reading the Bible, but I can't say that anything breathtaking has happened or earth shaking, which I could, but I'm not having any kind of visions in the clouds, anything like that. And uh, the 30 days came and went and I started eating again and I was so happy and everything seemed right with the world and I was glad I made it through. And uh, it's crazy because you start wanting to eat things while you're fasting that you normally wouldn't even want. I mean, I hate onions, but I would see onions during my fast and I'd be like, I would like to have a bath of onions and, uh, you know, I, rice cakes, man, you dream about rice cakes. You would like slit your wife's throat for a rice cake. I'm just being honest with you. It's very difficult for someone like me. I don't consider myself the most disciplined person in the world and I love food and, uh, it was challenging, but about three or four days after the fast had ended, I was upstairs in the attic of our house where my wife lets me have a little room to pray and read and study and uh, sequester myself from time to time. And I was trying to work on my book, and I was feeling happy because my tummy was full. And all of a sudden, God started to deal with me in the area of forgiveness. And I felt, I felt as if he said to me, now that you are on the other side of humbling yourself and surrendering your will to my will, there are some unresolved issues in your heart that I want to deal with because if you don't allow me to deal with these issues, it is going to keep you from progressing to the next level of your ministry. It's going to keep you from progressing to your next level of intimacy with me. Okay, notice um, it, uh, we're not hearing from the Bible at this point. We're based, God is having direct uh, conversations with Stephen Furtick, and this is what he's preaching about. And over the course of the next few days, God surfaced the names of six different people in my life where there had been an offense in the relationship. 
And the relationship had ended, and I thought it had ended well. But in my heart, there was a trace of bitterness, and I needed to go back and either personally deal with my own feelings or, on a very practical level, reach out to the person and make amends in the relationship. And one by one, I made some phone calls. I sent one or two emails, and I think I wrote one letter by hand, depending on specifically what I felt like that situation called for. I opened my heart up and I began to allow God to start to release me from some issues of bitterness and unforgiveness. And it changed my life. I remember my stomach hurt so badly after I made the sixth contact with the sixth person on the list that I felt like God wanted me to reach out to. It had been so emotionally draining that it had physically affected me. And for days, I was tired. This was several months ago, and I shared with the church during that time, very briefly, a snapshot of what God had brought me through. And I knew that eventually God would give me the opportunity to share with you the revelation that he gave me on the subject of forgiveness. Let me replay this. Hang on a second here. You need to hear these words again. Do you detect a problem? You should. With the church during that time, very briefly, a snapshot of what God had brought me through. And I knew that eventually God would give me the opportunity to share with you the revelation that he gave me on the subject of forgiveness. So this sermon series is so that Pastor Furtick can share with folks the special direct revelation that he received from God on the topic of forgiveness. So that it could set free thousands of people who may not even know that they're in prison. So that people could be released from bondage that they might not even know is keeping them held down. And for the next two weeks, I'm going to walk you through my personal experience with forgiveness so for the next two weeks this past sunday and the coming sunday pastor furtick is going to share with people his personal experience is that what pastors are called to do i mean apparently he's got an inside track to information that apparently Maybe no one else even has because God's talking to him directly. He's receiving direct extra biblical revelation. And that extra biblical revelation is going to set people free that may not even know that they are in bondage. I don't think I need to say anything else. We're up on our first break. If you would like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. Relevance Schmelevance, we preach Christ crucified for our sins. 
You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Hello, I wish to register a complaint. Uh, we're closing for lunch. Never mind that, my lad. I wish to complain about the sermon that I purchased a day ago from this very boutique. Uh, yes. Uh, what, what's wrong with it? I'll tell you what's wrong with it, my lad. It's a dead sermon. That's what's wrong with it. No, not possible. You just preached it wrong. Look, matey, I know a dead sermon when I preach one, and I know that the sermon I preached yesterday was certainly dead. Jesus Christ wasn't mentioned once, not even in the footnotes. No, no, you just weren't charismatic enough. Remarkable sermon, beautiful imagery. The imagery don't enter into it. It's stone dead. No, 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 no. You're just not open-minded enough. All right, then. If it's not dead, then I should be able to preach the gospel. I read a portion of it. Ahem. And then the camp counselor told all of the woodland creatures to become more righteous so that they, too, could get to the place called heaven. You, you see what I mean? This is ridiculous. There. I found the gospel in the sermon. No, you didn't. That was you just writing the word gospel on the cover of the room temperature sermon. Well, I never. Yes, you did. I, I never, never did anything. This entire sermon fails to preach anything that's worth anything to anyone. Now, that's what I call a dead sermon. No, no, no. You haven't looked deep enough into yourself. You must be joking. Yeah, well, you're just being divisive, and you refuse to accept the message that's being presented. Um, now, look. Now, look, mate. I've definitely had enough of this. That sermon is definitely rotten. And when I purchased it not but a day ago, you assured me that it was Christ-centered, cross-focused, and filled to bursting with the gospel. Well, if you would just read the title. Read the title? What kind of title is this anyway? Super Spiritual Happy Fun Friends Adventure Camp Pack. Well, this particular sermon is designed to draw large audiences, and that's what you said you wanted. It has lovely imagery. Look, I took the liberty of examining this sermon after I preached it, and I discovered the only reason why I bought it in the first place was because it had been put into the wrong sleeve package. Well, of course it's in the wrong package sleeve. If I hadn't put a less suspicious cover on the sermon, you'd have had people chasing you just so that they can hear you preach it. Chasing me down the street? Mate, listen, people wouldn't be chasing me to hear this rubbish if I was firing midgets out of cannons. It's bleeding demise. You didn't buy the midget cannon expansion pack? The sermon has passed on. The sermon is no more. It has ceased to be. It's expired and gone to me and its maker. It's a stiff. Bereft of life, it burns in hell. If you hadn't put it in the wrong package sleeve, I would be using it for Firestarter. The thought processes that brought it about are now history. It's off the twig. It's kicked the bucket. The bleeding choir invisible wouldn't listen to this sham. This is an ex-sermon. Uh, well, well I, I'd better replace it then. Let's see. Uh, Christ-centered uh, gospel Jesus. Well, sorry, Squire. I've had a look around in the back of the shop and, uh, well... We're right out of well, whatever it is that you're looking for. I see. I see. I get the picture. I, I got a sermon here from Rick Warren. Does it contain Jesus Christ and his atoning sacrifice? Well, no, not really. Well, that's hardly a replacement, is it? Look, if, if, if you're really dead set on the whole Jesus thing, I suggest that you look up Pirate Christian Radio. All they do is talk about Jesus 24-7. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Pirate Christian Radio? 
Very well, I'll give them a try. Dr. Rod Rosenblatt discussing the church's need for world-class scholarship and the unique way in which the British academic model offered at the Wittenberg Institute can help provide you with a top-level postgraduate theological degree. Christians are dependent on good scholarship in a way that sometimes we forget. Think of Tyndall House in England. Some of those evangelicals were so ruled away from the big table conversation in the Church of England that they had to develop graduate training under particular guys who had a high view of Christ and a high view of Scripture. Over the years, they did marvelous stuff with individual young scholars who came there to be trained. So what's the difference between the European model and the American model? The European is used to saying things like, I studied under so-and-so, and the American, uh, that's pretty foreign. And I'm not here talking about the diploma mills. I'm talking about somebody who is tutored, something like Oxford or at Cambridge, and uh, walked through graduate work. If you would like more information about the Wittenberg Institute's British-styled research master's degree, then visit them on the web at wittenberginstitute.org forward slash PCR or call them at area code 425-533-8659. Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseborough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. All right, we're back. Warning, if your pastor is preaching his direct revelations that he's getting directly from God, you probably need to find another church. Need to remind you all, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you as well as to the world. You can partner with us financially by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. Of course, if you would like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute and partner with us with, you can do so by clicking on the donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 508 Fishers, Indiana, zip code 
four six zero three eight. Okay, looking at my time here, um, you know, I better do the uh, cons- uh, the insurgency uh, one first. Hang on a second here. From the Huffington Post, headline reads: Conservative insurgency topples Missouri Synod president. You know, I took a moment of time here uh, during the break to make sure I understand what an insurgent is, what the definition is. An insurgent, this uh, comes from the uh, the Latin, it comes from a Latin word, insurgens, and uh, <laughs> uh, to rise more at, uh, it, and it means a person who revolts against civil authority or an established government, especially a rebel that is not recognized as a belligerent. So kind of a sneaky rebel who uh, who doesn't wear a uniform so that uh, th- that he can be mopped up. So it's kind of like a, uh, one who acts contrary to the policies and decisions of one's own party. Um, let's see. Insurgency, the quality of state of being an insurgent, especially a condition of revolt against a government that is less than organized and is not recognized as a belligerency. So there you have it. Just, I mean, do a little bit of work and you can kind of unravel the propaganda that kind of gets thrown at you from day to day. But those of you uh, like myself who are confessional Lutherans, uh, understand this. Uh, Apparently, you're now part of, uh, well, a rebellious movement, an an insurgency. And, uh, I mean... Yeah. Anyway, the the uh, this is from the Religious News Service. Uh, they wrote the original story that was carried by the Huffington Post. The story reads, uh, Dateline Houston, uh, delegates of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod on Tuesday elected the denomination's director of disaster response as president, a candidate backed by its more conservative members. The Reverend Matthew Harrison received 54% of the vote for the three-year term, defeating three-term incumbent the Reverend Gerald Kieschnick, who received only 45% of the vote. Harrison's victory represents a larger ideological change for the 2.5 million member conservative denomination, which is split between moderate and conservative camps. Harrison was the candidate of theological and doctrinal conservatives who call themselves confessional Lutherans and stress a strict adherence to cent- the central doctrines of Lutheranism. Yeah, that's right. We uh, we had absolute strict uh, adherence. I mean, so much so that you could probably call us the Taliban of, of, of uh, Lutheranism. Mm-hmm. Yeah. During his nine years as president, Kieschnick, who was 67, criticized was criticized by traditionalists who bemoaned what they called his postmodern approach to the church. Kieschnick said that, said, uh, Kieschnick, they said, had favored a non-denominational evangelical megachurch model and in the process diluted Martin Luther's theology. How about God's theology, biblical theology? Mm-hmm. Delegates had already voted on proposals which were championed by Kieschnick to radically restructure the denomination, and supporters said restructuring would decrease costs while critics felt that the moves could give too much power and authority to the president's office. Uh, the change we really need is not structural, Harrison wrote in the reporter a Senate newspaper before the convention. Part of me like the massive increase in power proposed for the Senate president. That's why it's not a good idea. 
On Monday, delegates voted by a narrow margin to dismantle the church's seven program boards and fold the board's functions into two super boards. It's ironic that the guy who had no desire to see an increase in the power of the presidency of the Senate is now in that position. Harrison said in an interview after the election, quote, the way forward is going to be deliberate and slow and involve the counsel of a lot of folks. As the executive director of the church's World Relief and Human Care Office since 2001, Harrison, who's 48, managed the denomination's national responses to the January earthquake in Haiti, in the 2004 Indian Ocean tsunami, and the Hurricane Katrina in 2005. Harrison's victory was not a complete surprise. When the nominations for president were tallied in April, Kishnik had received only 755 nominations, the lowest ever for a sitting president, and Harrison got 1,332. Quote, I think Pastor Harrison will focus on leadership in scripture, said the Reverend Timothy Rosso. <laughs> Tim Rosso of Brothers of John Steadfast, uh, who's also pastor of Bethany Lutheran Church in Naperville, Illinois, and a leader of the conservative movement to elect Harrison. He really believes unity of the Senate is very important. Rosso said he believed the feeling of change that has permeated the convention hall during the debates about restructuring called Harrison, uh, carried Harrison over the top. Quote, a lot of people uh, didn't politicize this election, he said. Uh, they just want a change and a fresh face. The Reverend Mark Hansen, presiding bishop of the larger and more liberal evangelical Lutheran church in America, congratulated Harrison on his election and issued a short statement wishing God's blessings on his tenure. Harrison was born in Sioux City, Iowa, and was ordained in 1991. He served two parishes in Iowa and Indiana over the next 10 years before assuming the disaster response job in 2001. Remarks to the delegates immediately after the vote, Harrison said his election represented a tumultuous change in the life of our synod and repeatedly spoke of challenging times ahead. You've kept your perfect record of electing sinners as your president, Harrison said. As Harrison took the stage after the election, he and Kishnick hugged as the delegates gave both men a standing ovation. After Harrison's remark, uh, remarks, Kishnick said his nine years as president had been a humbling burden. Quote, God bless this church body that I will always love and always serve, he said. So there you go. Um, pretty good article overall, of course, the way the uh, Huffington Post spun it. Apparently, uh, you cons confessional Taliban out there are responsible for toppling. <sighs> um, Kishnik's administration. Yeah, well, there you go. Okay, I'm looking at my time here. Oh, I've only got time for one more uh, I hate having to cut things. Well, I've got to do it. Okay, uh, from CNN.com, uh, uh, from the CNN.com website, the headline reads, Virtual Preaching Transforms Sunday Sermons. CNN, the Sunday morning service at Fellowship Church in Dallas, Texas, was humming along with hymns and prayers when something unusual happened. The lights in the sanctuary suddenly dimmed and members of the church hushed as they peered at a pulpit shrouded in darkness the parishioners then erupted in cheers and whistles as ed young senior the church's senior pastor emerged from the darkness with a microphone in hand please be seated young said as he grabbed the bible how are you guys doing today doing well young delivered his sermon but he couldn't hear or see his congregation respond he wasn't physically there Young's parishioners were instead looking at a high-def video image of their pastor beamed into their sanctuary from a mother church in Grapevine, Texas. Young is part of a new generation of pastors who can and can be in two places at one time. They are using technology, high-def videos, and even holograms. 
to beam their Sunday morning sermons to remote satellite churches that belong to their congregation. Spreading the gospel or distorting it, Young, whose congregation has about 20,000 members, spread across five churches, said his image is so lifelike that some visitors forget that he's not there. Quote, it's so real, the people have come up after the service to me, and other people are saying, dude, he's on video. Jeff Surratt, the author of Multisite Church Revolution, said at least 3,000 churches nationwide use some variation of high-def video to spread their pastor's Sunday morning sermons. Some broadcast hologram images of pastors that float suspended in the air behind the pulpit, while others project images of ministers on large video screens. Some sermons are broadcast live, while others are pre-recorded. A church can spend anywhere from 50000 to $2 million on the high-def technology, he said, but the cost may be worth it because the technology allows churches to reach more people without constructing new buildings. And apparently without training new pastors either. Quote, it's a revolution, said Surratt, pastor at a Seacoast church in South Carolina, which broadcasts its pastor's Sunday sermons to 13 locations. Quote, it's a very different way to spread the gospel. Yeah, see, the problem is, is are they really spreading the gospel based upon the sermons that we review here at Fighting for the Faith? I think that's a, a debatable uh, issue. Um, they may instead be spreading heresy. And I got to tell you, over and again, when this whole multi-site thing comes up, I understand that historically there have been pastors, even the Missouri Synod in the early days, who were circuit riders. They basically rode a circuit and they performed church services uh, in a circuit. So they they would they would uh, be responsible from anywhere to from five to six to seven different congregations, and uh, they would do you know do their perform their duties that way. Now I understand, you know, when when pastors are scarce, when um, you know te- the technology to run everything is uh, well not there, that uh, you know that you have to pool resources and come up with innovative ways of of addressing the challenges of not only preaching the gospel but administering sacraments and discipling and catechizing Christians. And so uh, th- understand this, that the Bi- we're called to disciple. That's where we're called to go and make disciples of all nations, uh, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. That, that involves catechesis. It involves preaching, teaching. It Im- involves baptism. It involves receiving the Lord's Supper. There's a whole lot to this. And I'm not a big fan of the multi-site thing, even if the guy is, if the guy was a confessional Lutheran. The reason why is because it it takes a you know, really um, the whole idea of catechizing and bringing people up in the Christian faith, teaching them sound doctrine and all of that kind of stuff. That takes a pretty hands-on shepherding approach, and um, and as a result of it, um, I'm not so big on the uh, multi-site thing because, I mean, seriously, I can watch high def pastors here at home on my television set. I don't. Have, I, I technically, I guess, I have a high def tef, uh, television, but I don't pay yet the extra to receive the high def signal. Um, so, you know, over and again, you know, my question is: is that how are people being shepherded? You don't have a relationship with a video image. 
I mean, to say that you have a relationship with a video image is basically would be like me, you know, you know, downloading a couple of pictures of Angelina Jolie and basically saying, yeah, she's my other wife. Yeah, right. Whatever. She's not. And, uh, you know, and I, I don't have a relationship with Angelina Jolie, even though I've seen uh, one or two of her movies. You know, this is it's ridiculous. You know, I I call me call me old fashioned. Call me a fogey. Call me ugly. I've been called worse, but I really think there's something to be said about having a pastor who knows who you are, who pays attention to your attendance at the congregation. Whom, whom has had meals with you, knows your family, knows your weaknesses, knows what you're struggling with, has held your hand, has prayed with you, whom you have confessed your sins to, whom you receive the sacraments from directly week after week after week after week. Yeah, I don't think anything can really, really, no technology can replace that. And the importance of that cannot be understated. You can't administer the sacraments via high-def video. And, you know, many of these seeker-driven guys, they're, they're not multiplying the gospel. They're multiplying their error and their watered-down message. So, yeah, I, I'm just not a big fan of it. Anyway, so, if yeah, there, there's, the, uh, there's the article. So... Okay, we're up on our second break. When we come back, we're going to do our sermon review today. The name of it is called Defining Leadership by Epic Church. Aaron Hamilton, uh, Epic Church, Fullerton, California. And as you listen to this sermon from a seeker-driven church, Epic Church, just ask yourself, if this were beamed to 13 different campuses, would all the thousands of people who were watching it Sunday after Sunday via high-def video, would they be hearing the biblical gospel? Would they be being taught sound biblical Christ-centered doctrine and theology, or would they be taught something else? Well, you'll have to be the judge of that, and uh, when we get back, you'll have the opportunity to to, uh, make that decision. All right, so uh, without any further ado, let's dive into our break. (laughs) We'll be right back. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter, my name there, Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. We don't need to rethink Christianity. We need to rediscover it. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. This is the air I breathe. This is the air I breathe. I've had enough. Of this sissy, pansy, cannon photo written music, you have the audacity to call worship. Men, put this entire girly praise band in the boo box. Let's wheel in the organ and get some real worship music underway.
Ye be listening to Pirate Christian Radio. Are you tired of giving gifts that are as boring as elevator music? I mean, how many ties and dust-collecting paperweights does a person need? Well, Pirate Christian Radio has the perfect solution to boring gifts. The answer is Cloud9 Living. Cloud9 Living offers more than 1,600 unique and memorable experience gifts in 42 cities nationwide. Gifts such as hot air balloon rides, dinner cruises, stock car racing, skydiving, and combat aircraft dogfighting. Cloud9 Living has gifts for every taste and every budget. For more information on Cloud9 Living, visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cloud9. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cloud9. You'll be glad that you did. Hello, this is Reverend Matt Slick, President and Founder of the Christian Apologetics and Research Ministry. I wanted to let you know about our online schools of theology, apologetics, and critical thinking. Each school has been developed out of my more than 30 years of experience as a teacher, author, and defender of the Christian faith. With these schools, you can learn what you need to know about the Christian faith, how to defend it, and how to promote the gospel. The three schools are very easy to use, and you can go through them at your own pace. They're designed with short, succinct lessons that include topics such as Christian doctrine, the Bible, evangelism, the cults, atheism, evolution, Islam, logic, and critical thinking. Each lesson is followed by questions that you answer in a self-paced fashion. So, in order to grow in your Christian faith, please visit CARM.org, that's C-A-R-M dot O-R-G, and click on the link for the online schools at the top of the page. And enter the code PIRATE to receive a 10% discount. All right, we're back. Hour number two of Fighting for the Faith. Sermon review time. And like I said to you prior to the commercial break, ask yourself this question as you're listening to this sermon. If this pastor were a multi-site pastor, he may be, I, I don't know. Would the people at the different campi having this message beamed in, would they be hearing sound biblical doctrine? Christ and Him crucified for our sins, what the Bible actually teaches, what we should be confessing, or would they be hearing something else? I mean, yeah, and by the way, it's more than just the message that we need. We need the Lord's Supper as well. Um, Anyway, uh, let me cue up the music here. That's our tradition at Fighting for the Faith. The good, the bad, and the ugly. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We are an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's sermon comes to us via Epic Church in Fullerton, California. Pastor Aaron Hamilton will be preaching on a sermon entitled Defining leadership 
Now, if you listen to the opening to the sermon, you will hear his reasoning as to why he's preaching on leadership. Ask yourself this question. Um, is there much difference between his reasoning for preaching on leadership as uh, Ian Lawton's reasoning for taking down the cross at C3 Exchange? Just write that question down and see if you can answer it in the course of our sermon review time. Well, with that, let's kill the music. There we go. So without any further ado, here is Pastor uh, Aaron Hamilton from Epic Church in um, Fullerton, California, defining leadership. Um, I'm really excited about this morning because we're beginning a new series. We're going to spend May talking about leadership and what that is and, and what that means. One of the reasons we want to talk about it more explicitly is because we're the kind of church, we have people coming from lots of different places, lots of different backgrounds, lots of different experiences, lots of different churches, lots of different cultures. And so discussions about leadership, what a leader is, they can be confusing because a lot of times we use the same words and mean different things by them. And yet still at the end of the day, everybody kind of has this somewhat innate category for leadership. Okay, I got to pause. <clears throat> in all of church's history, you know, in all of the history of the Christian church, are there examples? There may be. I don't know. You, you tell me. Are there examples of huge denominational splits caused by um, uh, religious factions who define leadership a particular way. You know, I could think of, you know, maybe there is. I mean, you could think of some churches, they have the deacon, you know, uh, elder model, and others have the episcopal bishop model. Um, is that, you think, what we're going to get here? You know, we're going to hear one particular model of church leadership as far as elders and things like that are concerned, as opposed to bishops and, you know, and maybe a more congregational leadership model. I mean, maybe, I guess there are examples of, you know, cons you know, considerable differences of opinion when it comes to leadership models in the church. Is that what we're going to be hearing from Aaron Hamilton or is he going to be talking about, well, you know, leadership? like we would get out in the business world. Well, let's, do, let's continue. Maybe, I don't know. Let's find out. In 1964, there was a Supreme Court judge, and in his verdict, in his ruling, it was a, it was a, a pornography case. And his official ruling was, I don't know what pornography is, but I know it when I see it. And I think leadership's kind of the same way. That each of us, even if we can't define it, we may not know exactly what it is, but we know it when we see it. Just like Justice Potter said in back in 64. Yeah, he's not talking about congregational or church leadership structures and models. He's just, he doesn't know what leadership is, but he knows it when he sees it. We know when we see it, but it gets confusing. And so some of the hope here in the next month is really to build a sense of unity and from the ground up a definition of what leadership is uh, in a biblical sense. Some things we can hang our hat on. Corporate. So you're going to create a sense of unity in your congregation 
centering on uh, common ground regarding how to define leadership. Yeah. Uh, Do people go to hell if they are not united with other Christians on the doctrine of leadership? Now, one of the things about this is I really hope that it generates lots of discussion. And so I want to encourage you, the offering baskets that you saw going around, there's a couple things that I'd like to do to foster more discussion. One is after service every day, I'm actually going to sit right where James is sitting. Would you raise your hand, James? Um, Just to squash him, basically. But uh, I'll have an hour, and I hope that in that hour... Um, after service, we can talk if there are questions or things that are left unanswered. And we can talk and dialogue about those things. Originally, I wanted to go... Yeah, because, you know, everyone's burning question that they have in their mind about God and Jesus Christ is how they define leadership. Because that's why Jesus was hanging on the cross. Go over to Knollwoods, but I realized by the time we got there and were seated and got our food, it would be time to go home and... There wouldn't be much discussion to be had. The other thing I want to let you know is we are, you've seen the offering baskets that have gone around, and we're going to put one of the offering baskets on the information table. And so during today, as questions come to mind, if there are things you've always wondered, there's questions about what you hear today, feel free to jot them down and just throw them in the basket, and we'll start just these next few weeks with uh, just answering some of the questions. So hopefully it'll be a good time to come together put our minds together and find some things in Scripture uh, to teach us about what a leader is. So where do you start? Yeah, seriously. Yeah, well, wait, you're a pastor. Shouldn't you begin in the Bible? You know, open up to an epistle or to a gospel lesson or, or maybe an entire Old Testament section. of. <clears throat> where do you start in the Bible if you want to learn about what a leader is? Where do you go? As soon as you start, you might realize it's actually hard to find that word in Scripture. <laughs> oh, man. I'm not going to make it through the sermon. I could just tell you right now. I'm, ha- I'm struggling. It's not there a lot. Now, the idea is, but one of the few places that that word is mentioned in Scripture is in Matthew 23. So we're going to start at Matthew 23. That, that's where I found myself wrestling. Would you stand for the reading of the word, please? <clears throat> now, I, I don't mean this past any disrespect, but uh, my listeners don't feel like you have to stand up while he reads. I just, this is a radio program, not a church service. Matthew 23 reads as follows. Verse 1, Then Jesus spoke to the crowds and to his disciples, saying, The scribes and the Pharisees have seated themselves in the chair of Moses. Therefore, all that they tell you, do and observe, but don't do according to their deeds, for they say things and do not do them. They tie up heavy burdens and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are unwilling to move them with so much as a finger. But they do all their deeds to be noticed by men, for they broaden their phylacteries and lengthen the tassels of their garments. They love the place of honor at banquets and the chief seats in the synagogues and respectful greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by men. But do not be called rabbi, for one is your teacher, and you are all brothers. Do not call anyone on earth your father, for one is your father, he who is in heaven. 
Do not be called leaders, for one is your leader, that is Christ. But the greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself shall be humbled, and whoever humbles himself shall be exalted. Let's pray. Jesus, your word is piercing. We pray that you would show us the truth in it, that our hearts would be open to what you have to say. We pray that you would show us something new about yourself and that your word would be a blessing. And we trust in your spirit at work here this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, got to give him props. We, we actually begin with a gospel reading. Hey, that's a good place to start. Although leadership. All right, let's continue. Let's see what he does. Well, these are strong words. You don't hear them a lot, quite honestly. There's a lot at stake. They're risky words when Jesus says this. Don't call anyone teacher, father, leader. The greatest shall be the servant. Now, what's happened that Jesus says this? Jesus has entered the temple. You probably all know the story. He goes in, he drives out the money changers who are robbing people. And he creates quite a stir. And very quickly, every group in the temple rushes to check his credentials. Every group rushes to find out, by whose authority do you do these things, Jesus? What gives you the right? Every authority, everybody who had any power in the temple tried to test him. So the chief priests and the scribes who ran the temple system for the nation, the Sadducees, more aristocratic caste, if you will, the Pharisees, And everybody went to Jesus to test him to figure out, how do you say these things? Everyone wanted to know. And so Jesus answers everybody. And he answers them. He answers their questions, usually with a question. Throws them off the scent, I guess. And as he turns to leave from his time in the temple, the crowds have gathered around him. The religious leaders have gathered around him. And he has dealt with them so quickly, they're plotting against him. And before he leaves the temple for what would be the last time, he turns to his disciples and he turns to the crowd and he tells them all those things that we just saw. I imagine that the crowd, as they heard it, was initially pleased. I think a lot of people there would have recognized, yeah, you know what, I am tired of those Pharisees telling me what to do. I'm tired of their holier-than-thou attitude. I'm tired of their showy lifestyle. They're just a bunch of know-it-alls. We were doing well. I mean, he, this almost sounds like an expository sermon. We were doing well. What happened? And I imagine that the crowd was getting excited as they heard Jesus say these things until they get to the end. And he says, you know what? Don't call anyone teacher. Don't call anyone father. Don't call anyone leader. And I imagine if the energy and the excitement of that conversation as they heard Jesus teach, it was peaking as he tore the Pharisees up and he said that thing and boom. Don't call anyone father. What? Where are you going with this, Jesus? Because Jesus is describing something that honestly is just foreign to us. 
Quite frankly, it's no wonder they killed him because he turned their world upside down. He described something unimaginable to them. And so it's a hard, it's a hard word to, to wrestle with. But I think this passage is really an important starting point because we see a number of things about Jesus. Not to mention this is one of the only passages that uses the word leader. And the fact that it comes out of Jesus' own mouth makes it significant. But I think we see a lot of important things. There's two in particular that I want to talk about this morning. The first is this. It's interesting that in discussing leadership, in discussing the position that these people held, Jesus seems much more concerned about their character than he does their position. That may make sense to you. That may make, be a little strange. But what Jesus ultimately identifies as wrong with the Pharisees is their character, how they treat people. Even more than their position is their heart. It's what's inside that counts when Jesus talks about these things. Okay. Could we be about ready to talk about sin? I'm a little bit surprised. Kind of, wow. And that, that's significant. Because the roles and the leadership roles and stations and positions in Scripture are really fluid. And they're really vague. And they're hard to pin down a lot of times. In fact, there was no formal leadership in the Christian church until the third century. It was all a lay movement. And the more you study Paul... Uh, no, um, <clears throat> that's not correct. Uh, even the Apostle John was the bishop of Ephesus. There were elders, <clears throat> and there were deacons, and there were bishops. Yeah, no, uh, and no, that's not correct. And, and look at all of the different things that Paul describes. You realize he starts using some of his labels interchangeably. And so the difference between deacons and elders and bishops, he's kind of fast and loose. He starts using the same word in different places. And so it's fluid. And then we realize at the end of the day, one of the things that Ray Anderson, our theology professor, used to say that Kevin and I delighted in, is at the end of the day, Jesus was a lay leader who held no formal position. But his character was so compelling that people followed him. Who Jesus was was so profound that crowds were drawn to him. And so that's a good starting point if we're going to consider leadership, if we're going to consider Jesus as a leader, that he tackles first matters of the heart. And character. He tackles the Pharisees' hypocrisy. He's, he looks at the way they act, the way they assume the authority as the teachers of the law. As if God wouldn't speak to anyone else. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah, you can't, uh, you can't teach sound biblical theology by messing up theology. Um, oh, man the way that they're hypocrites. They don't seem to care about people as much as they care about their own image. Yeah. The way they put lots of shoulds on people, tell them what to do. 
um, God's law put a lot of shoulds on people. They added more shoulds than was in the law. They weigh people down with heavy burdens and rituals and things. They wear phylacteries. A phylactery was commandment from Exodus and Deuteronomy that people built leather boxes and they put little versions, scrolls of the law in them. And they would wear them on their foreheads and their wrists during their morning prayers. Only the Pharisees liked to have theirs a little bit bigger than everybody else's, a little bit more ornate, because they were a little bit more spiritual than everybody else. And the tassels on their garments were a little bit longer, a little bit better looking, because after all, you need to be dignified if you're going to lead a people. And there's some comment by scholars and rabbis that the reason their their tassels were longer is because you would pull on them when you were praying. But their tassels were longer because they, they just prayed so much more. And Jesus identifies their ambition, their love of honor and praise and respect in the public sphere. And he says, no, none of that. None of that. Okay, again, I got to give this guy props for one very important thing. He's he's working with the text in a way that we normally don't hear. He's definitely coming up with very liberal ideas. I can you know I can you just get the feelings of it. You know the the twinges and you go it hits your ear and you go wait no but hey you know unlike a lot of the other guys um, he um, is sticking with the text pretty tight. And so that's a good starting point. That leadership in the kingdom of God is based on character, not position. <clears throat> Open up your Bible. Uh, Matthew 23. Let's read uh, the verses 1 through 12 again. <clears throat> Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the scribes and the Pharisees, sit on Moses' seat. Whose seat do they sit on? That would be the seat of Moses. Who put them there? Who created that seat? God did. They have a they have a valid, valid office given from God. They sit on Moses' seat, so practice and observe whatever they tell you, but not what they do. For they preach, they don't practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds in order to be seen by others. They make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long, and they love the place of honor at the feast and the best seats in the synagogue and greetings in the marketplace and being called rabbi by others. But you're not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher, and you are all brothers. And call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, that's Christ. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled. Whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Is this really about leadership or is this about vanity? Is this about 
exalting yourself above other people, enjoying the trappings of office, of being a hypocrite. You know, this continues. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, verse 13. You hypocrites! You shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. For you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte, and when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. Woe to you blind guides who say if anyone swears by the temple, it's nothing. But anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he's bound by his oath. You blind fools. Which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? And you say if anyone swears by the altar, it's nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that's on the altar, well, then he's bound by his oath. You blind men. Which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? So whoever swears by the altar swears by it and everything that's on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. Whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You tithe mint and dill and cumin and You've neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, faithfulness. These you, you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides, you strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they're full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisees, first clean the inside of the cup. And then the outside also will be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful. But within, they are full of dead people's bones and all forms of uncleanliness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others. But within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, If we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in the shedding of blood of the prophets. Thus you witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your fathers, you serpents. You brood of vipers, how are you going to escape being sentenced to hell? Therefore, I send you prophets. I send you wise men and scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify, and some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of innocent Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, 
How often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings. But you would not. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So is Matthew 23 really about giving us principles and helping us to find what a leader is? Or is it really Jesus cranking up the law to show us the dangers of self-indulgence and arrogance and unabated ambition and twisting God's word and and enjoying the trappings of a religious office and abusing it and missing the whole point of it, which is really the forgiveness of sins and Christ and him crucified. And another point in the Gospel of John, Jesus says to the Pharisees, You diligently search the scriptures, for you think that in them you have life. Yet they are these that testify about me, and you refuse to come to me to have life. Do you think Jesus was calling down the woes on the Pharisees just to slap them around and get a dig in on them? No. Jesus loved the Pharisees, so much so that he died on the cross for their sins. He wanted nothing more and nothing less for them to repent and be gathered to him. But they wouldn't. That's really what's going on in Matthew 23. It's not about principles of leadership. But we continue. And I'm guessing that that probably makes sense. I'm guessing that all of us in here have had a boss or a leader, or someone over us that looking back at it, you just really, you're not sure how they ever got that position. Because they were terrible. Yeah, you ever had that experience? All the time. (laughs) Amen. Take a minute, turn, share with a friend. What's What's the worst boss that you ever had? The worst leader that you ever had? Let's just take five minutes, a quick discussion, and we'll come back together. Okay, so I realize that's not even close to enough time. And there's a part of me that would like to write down every story that's being told right now. Because uh, My jaw is sitting on the desk. He, he did what? He, oh, man. He paused the sermon, stopped preaching, and had everyone share amongst themselves what their worst boss was. Oh, no. Because no. <laughs> we have a book. It would be kind of like the anti-chicken soup for the employee. But I'm guessing we all have been around people who their character does not match their position in life. I remember the first time I kind of had this awareness in a, in a, experienced it in a visceral way was on the 4th of July, my sophomore year in high school. I worked at this restaurant on the beach, little beach town I grew up. I just, you know, couple gas stations and restaurants, and we charged too much and had bad food. And uh, you may find this hard to believe, but I was the fry cook. And I fried it up right, thank you very much. And I was the fry cook, and, and I was in charge of everything that went into the fryer, especially, now hear me now, this is important, especially the French fries, because we had good fries at our restaurant. And, you know, I hate to break this to you, but the French fries are not real. They come in this 
10, 20 pound bag that looks like kitty litter. And you put it in this machine that blows hot water and it kind of puffs out. And they extrude it through this blade and it just chops it. There's nothing real about them. But we were famous for our fries. And I was the fry cook. And the guy who was a head, the head of the whole kitchen, he was a, he was an okay guy, I guess. But for some reason, the owners loved this guy. And so he ran the kitchen. And it was clear it was his kitchen. And for some reason, I guess I was supposed to be, you know, whoa, it's, it's his kitchen. On the 4th of July, the population of my town goes from about 2,000 to about 36,000 people because it's on the beach and everybody comes. In the middle of the day, people are lined up 12 deep to get to the little window, right, that people shout into and we slap it to them on. And so I'm making all these french fries because people are 10 or 12 deep. It's amazing. There's just a huge line outside. And I'm making french fries and I'm making french fries. <laughs> and I made more fries. And, and somewhere along the line between me and some of the other cooks and the, the head of the kitchen, he hit me and bam, all the french fries on the floor. And I just thought, ah. So I go to start another batch to start over. People are going to be upset. And he looks at me and he goes, no, man. And he gets a scoop and he goes down to the floor and he just scoops it up, throws it on a tray, kind of picks some of the garbage out, puts it in the little bags, and hands it out to people. And I remember just, there was a part of me that was like, that's so cool. And then I thought, whoa, that's, that's really wrong. How come he's running the kitchen? Turns out there were a lot of corners that he cut. And I remember going home that day just thinking, like, is that legal? Can you do that? How could they hire someone like that? And truth be told, I'm sure there was part of my own heart in it. Like, how come they made him the head of the kitchen instead of me? But it was my first real working world experience of people do not always have the character I would hope for out of their positions. And so when we talk about leadership, that's a good place to start. Leadership is first and foremost a character issue. There are other components. There's community, there's position, there's skill set. Okay, now in some degree he's right. Leadership is a character issue. Um, the, then the question becomes, um, what is the source of true good character? For there's none good except for God. We're all wretched sinners. So here we have this allusion to character. But if you don't deal with the problem that we're all wretched sinners who have anything but good character by nature, um, yeah, we've got a problem. Especially if this ends up turning Jesus into just an example that we can follow to, you know, improve our character and our leadership skills. But at the heart of it, what Jesus identifies with the Pharisees is a character issue. And that's a solid place to start. I think the other place that this passage takes us that's so helpful is that Jesus says, don't be called leaders for one is your leader. That is Christ. That's profound. And it may be obvious. We may assume it. Oh, of course, Jesus is our leader. But there are some profound implications to that. 
Christ is our leader. Any consideration there, according to Jesus, any consideration of leadership must begin and end with Jesus. Jesus is the standard by which we should judge leadership. If Christ is our leader, then he's our pattern. Jesus himself is the best description of what a leader looks like. You see, the world defines leadership in a lot of different ways. All of them have truth to them. Well, mostly. I haven't read all of them, so I I better step back from that. Many of them have truth to them. Leadership is the ability to get things done. It's the ability to influence people. It's the ability to have vision, to know what the right thing to do is, to know what the next step is. The world has lots of ideas. But in the end, we have to hold each of those things up and see how well they fit on Jesus. Because Jesus, for the Christian, is the leader. Capital L. Yeah, in what sense? I agree. He's our leader. He's our Lord and Savior, great God and King, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Is that what you mean? And all of the things and all of the theories and all of the discoveries that we may find, that we understand about leadership, ultimately must be judged by how well they conform to the image of Christ. You see that? We have to evaluate leadership by Jesus. He has to be our standard. If you want to know what good leadership looks like, you can read the Gospels. Because we know Jesus. Now, I want to clarify. It's not saying that those other things we learn from the world, from the business world, from sociology, from psychology. It's not saying that those things are automatically invalid. It's not saying that those things aren't even helpful. It's not saying those things aren't useful. Quite the opposite. There are a lot of tremendously helpful things. One look at our bookshelves up in the office would tell you that there's a lot of helpful stuff to be gleaned from the world and its consideration of leadership. But we have to understand that there is something fundamentally different in the goals and the aims of a Christian leader. And all of the books and all of the things that we understand must be judged by Jesus and how well they conform to who Jesus is before we say, yes, great, let's do that too. Make sense? See, and part of the reason is Jesus has some different assumptions about humanity, about human nature, and about community than we do. There's something really beautiful hidden in this passage. Okay. You mean, you know, because Jesus said that we are by nature evil and that out of our heart comes evil things. Is, is, that, is that what you were referring to? Don't call anybody rabbi, which means teacher. Don't call anyone teacher. God's your teacher. God's your father. Christ is your leader. Don't call anyone teacher because you are all brothers and sisters. Though most likely in the temple at this time, it was mostly men around. But that's a beautiful picture of the world, isn't it? His reasoning is that, hey, don't call anybody teacher because you are all family. And God is your father. And Christ is your leader. Yes, yes. So don't get tripped up on the position. Because at the end of the day, 
we are all the family of God. And that's a, yeah, it's a beautiful image. And in fact, it's one that's repeated throughout the New Testament that we are adopted into the family of God, that we are chosen by Him. Yeah. The meta- yeah. How, how, how? Uh, details, please. Metaphors used to describe this family, family, adopted family. Sometimes it's the body, again, an organic metaphor. It's never an army or a business. It's always family. Isn't that profound? That Je- uh, You know, there are passages that refer to us as an army and soldiers and tell us to put on the armor of God. Hmm. Jesus says, hey, we are all family. Now, again, I want to clarify. I don't think that Jesus is saying, therefore, don't be organized. Let chaos reign. Clearly, I don't think that's the case. Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 40, he says, God is a God of order. And so when Jesus says, stop making lots of distinctions amongst yourself because we are all family and Jesus is our leader, I don't think he's then trying to say, so, you know, hey, Anything goes, let it all hang out. Clearly, order was a high value. In January, I preached a message out of 1 Samuel when Israel chooses a king. And God's interpretation was, you have chosen this person, a king, instead of me. And at the end of it, I held out a mirror and I showed it. And it reflected the congregation. I said, this is Epic's leadership team. And I want to clarify some of what I meant there. Because I did not intend to say that there is no organization. That there is no structure to anything we do. But rather to capture some of that same spirit Jesus speaks with here. That we are all a family with access to the Father. That everyone has things that God will put on their heart that are important for all of us corporately as well as individually. And that the model of humanity that Jesus lays out here is not one where people run ahead and call back to everybody, but that a family moves in concert. Everyone's welcome. Everybody is embraced. Everybody is valued. place where everybody knows your name. The community that Jesus envisioned was not one of privilege and stratification, but of shared access. A big family. We are family in here. That's the goal. That's where your Christian faith is heading. That we would all be family together in God. And so it's really important that we understand that leadership begins and ends with Jesus as our leader. Now, you might be asking, okay, if that's the case, we're we're all family and there's not stratification and diverse, you know, division, those kinds of things. What's the point of having a pastor? Why do we even have pastors? Because we have not one, but two. And since he's not here today, I'm going to take liberties bad-mouthing him. (laughs) Mr. Kevin Doy. Why have pastors at all? Well, in some respects, I think pastors 
are a very modern appendage. And the way that Kevin and I understand it is that there are communities who put out calls, that there are people who have specific skills and character, and then supporting a pastor that frees someone up full-time to help everybody. That's why the call is so important, because it's a community call. It's not just making decisions to put people in places to pull levers. So that we can be family. The pastor is supposed to foster that and empower that. And so that's some of our understanding. I think the last reason why it's so important to be clear that Jesus is our model of a leader is this. One thing Scripture does not mince words about, one thing that Scripture is very clear about, is that it is our fundamental nature. It is our brokenness to put people in our hearts in places that God should be. That is the human condition. That we let things rule us, people rule us, even ideas and structures rule us when we should let God rule us. From the serpent in the garden, hey, here's a different take. What? Did he really mean that? I just take the apple. To Israel choosing a king, to the prophets having to speak to the kings and saying, hey, you need to put your faith in God, not your strength, not your techniques and abilities. To Jesus, And his rejection as the crowd cries out, set Barabbas free. You can take him. The witness of scripture is that our hearts quickly dethrone God and put other people in his place. And we so often look for surrogates to other people, especially leaders I find in my own life, to tell me what God is saying. I feel like I'm on a treadmill sometimes, and I'm always trying to find the person who knows what God wants for my life. Because it's so hard for me to have the kind of relationship where I hear God tell me what he wants for my life. And over time, that always gets you in trouble, doesn't it? When I listen to people louder than God himself, when I pay more attention to the opinions of others and I let my fear rule me and my concern over what people will think, instead of praying and asking God what he would have for me, I don't do that often enough. And again, I want to be clear. This is not to say that we shouldn't listen to people. Clearly, God speaks through people. This is not to say that there are not people who are more trustworthy, who are just more helpful. I mean, we all know people who are more helpful, better listeners, have a better idea of who we are. It's not saying that that's not the case. But what it is saying is we have to be sure at the core who leads our life. We have to be sure at the core who is our leader. We have to continually ask ourselves, is God on the throne? Do you listen to God or do you listen to people? There's, um, yeah, there's, um, the salt seems to be missing from this uh, meal. Yep, no, it's, um, I just, mm. 
in some senses, I feel like I'm being nagged at the moment. Um, you know, let's see where he lands. What was the last decision you prayed about more than you worried about? I wish I had an answer to that question. I find I don't. The Dalai Lama could ask the question, um, th- that exact same question. What is uniquely Christian about this sermon so far? I mean, yeah, he's. I mean, we read Matthew twenty-three. We've heard about Jesus and making sure he's our leader and stuff, and we've heard about our fundamental brokenness and you know all that kind of stuff. But um, where's the cross? Where's the forgiveness of sins for when we've biffed it? and really been a schlocky, bad, self-centered, self-aggrandizing leader? Mm. And you understand that it's not hard for our leader to hear God's voice. John 5, Jesus explained... Yeah, what is with that whole hearing God? We know that anybody here can hear God's voice. Um, um, what role does the Bible play kind of is it is the bible somewhere alongside of those people who are hearing directly uh from god and hearing god's voice means to everybody he says i tell you the truth the son can do nothing by himself he can do only what he sees his father doing because whatever the father does the son also does and so jesus in this passage makes very clear that the starting point of any discussion about leadership that Jesus is the leader, that God is on the throne, that the new creation he is bringing about is one in which the Father reigns and we are all his children. Amen? Who do you listen to? What voices in your life drown out the voice of God? Is it friends? Is it parents? You know, I'm glad you asked this question because, ironically, a lot of times it's um, pastors. Co-workers. Maybe it's pain. Maybe it's fear. Those things speak loudly in my heart. I mean, in my own life, I wonder what my life would be like right now if I had not been so concerned about what people think about me all these years. If I had not been so consumed by fear and protecting myself, sometimes I think my life would have turned out really different had I not struggled with this so much. You know, I think the last ministry I was at, I probably would have left several years earlier, but I so wanted to be approved. I so wanted people to think that, you know what, he's an all right guy. He actually does good ministry. And it just kind of kept me hanging on for a few years until finally I realized, you know what, this just isn't working. I wish I would have gotten a jump start on the next part of my life and the healing God had for me. But I was so afraid. I so needed to be told I was okay. I think I would have been married a lot earlier than I was. You know, when G and I were in college, we were, you know, it was a college fellowship. It was one of those things. And we were one of the First people to date. Why do I feel like we're just kind of like, you know, reminiscing through this guy's life? (sighs) Which is, that's ugly ground to have to break. (laughs) And there were a lot of folks and leaders who were not so certain that it was a good thing. Didn't want it to get in the way of some of the ministry that needed to get done. 
And honestly, if you look at my life now, is there anybody who thinks that getting married was not just the best thing that's happened to me ever? Let's be honest. Now, now unfortunately, I'm not so sure it's true for Gia, but at least from my end, no doubt. But because I was concerned about people's opinion and what they thought, and I didn't want to make waves, and I, I didn't, well, I'll just listen. I didn't do it. And so I wonder, what kind of person would I be? How would I be different now if I listened to God and heard him more clearly than I heard people? See, there we go again. If I heard God more clearly, I, what do you expect? I, are you listening to him on like some kind of a shortwave radio? You know, we have to kind of turn the knobs and go. Whoosh, whoosh, Open your Bible, read it. That's how you hear from God. And that's a profound question, and it's a hard question. And that's why we need to talk about it. So we're going to take a minute. And I challenge you. That's a hard one. It's a vulnerable one. If you don't feel safe, that's okay. But have you ever thought about that? (laughs) If you don't feel safe, that's okay. I've always, you know, what on earth are we doing? I mean, is this a therapy session now? You know, hey, you know, we're talking about leadership, but if you don't feel safe, you know, talking about that's okay. Not that there's anything wrong about that, but oh, how would your life be different if you heard God speak louder than people? People's messing up there. That's how quiet they're speaking. So go ahead and turn to your neighbor. Don't you think if God needed me to hear his voice, he could find a way to turn the volume up enough that I would hear it clearly? Just chew the fat about that. How would your life be different if you heard God as loudly as other voices? So that's... Oh, no. So... (laughs) Second time that he's paused his preaching so that they can have a... You know, chew the fat. That's what he just said. Chew the fat. You know, share some ideas about, you know... If I could hear God's voice more clearly, what would that mean in the in in, in the reality of leadership in my life? <laughs> that's a little time to kind of spin on that question. Because I find that's a haunting question, isn't it? I don't know if you could capture some sort of sense. And, and I ask that question as we discuss it, not to create some sense of profound regret, like, oh, if only I had done that. No. Make more. You know, this sermon would be um, way better if it actually had as its one of its intended goals to make people regret things that they had done and make them feel terrible and sorry for the sins that they have committed. Instead, it's more like group therapy. Well, imagine what your life would be like if you would just, you know, whatever. Or to grapple with at a deep level how much our hearts really are held sway under people and under things other than God. But the good news of the passage is that Jesus, that Christ is our Lord, not those other voices. And he is gentle and he is kind. And though he says something that is really intense, he says, just don't call anybody teacher. Don't call anybody father. Don't call anybody leader. He doesn't stop there. Because he ends up with a famous 
phrase, he says, but the greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself shall be humbled, and whoever humbles himself or herself will be exalted. Okay, what does it mean to humble yourself before God? Do you think that repentance and the forgiveness of sins comes to play in here? Plus, in Matthew 23, Jesus says some far more intense words than what he just said. I mean, I just read the whole woe to you Pharisee stuff. What's it mean to humble yourself before God? Yeah, repentance and the forgiveness of sins definitely play into it. And with that, he ushers in just a different understanding of how the world works. That the family of God is a family full of people helping one another. And that's what we'll understand as great. Instead of position and power and the authority that these people in the temple were wielding, not on other people's behalf. And we'll call that great. The love and the servanthood and the humility that they offer. And so I hope today that those are two solid foundational pieces as we begin our discussion and understanding of what leadership in the gospel is. That leadership in Jesus' eyes is primarily about character and that he ultimately is Lord. By the way, this idea that Jesus is Lord, that that's not the gospel. Um, understand this, only those who are given by the Holy Spirit, by God, them, by God himself, are capable of making that confession that Jesus is Lord. And it's more than just saying he's my leader. Tied up and wrapped up in that, the whole idea of Jesus is Lord is this idea that he is God, that he is, that he is the one true God. He is, you see, there's a lot going on there. And, um... On the last day, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And yet not everybody is saved. And so for some, that confession that Jesus is Lord is judgment. For others, it's highest praise. So that's not the gospel. And as we come here as the family, once again, we come to the table and we say, yes, Father, I want what you have for me. I am so grateful that you serve me, not the other way around. I'm so grateful that communion reminds me that he shed his blood for me not the other way around. Nice, nice. Okay, now, aside from the fact that this is a pretty wimpy and deficient doctrine of the Lord's Supper, that was a full-blown... That was a gospel nugget. We got to hear about Jesus' forgiveness of sins, shed blood on the cross. Nice. We don't hear that very often anymore. And that the Spirit of God is drawing us all towards being a family. Amen? I know there are more questions. Hopefully... I yeah, that... that <laughs> hang on a second here. Yeah, um, you remember when I did this? Yeah, that, that thing just went hauling 
through this sermon. Wow. Would have been nice if you'd spent a little bit of time on that. You know, the gospel, the the important thing. I, I created more questions than I answered, and we'll have a chance to talk about them. We'll have a, you can, we can do Q&A afterwards. We can do it um, next week as well. And I invite your questions and encourage the discussion. But for now, it's right that we would settle at communion and try and share our hearts with God. Let's pray. Yeah, um, kind of a classic problem here, beginning with a subject and then going to a text. Rather than starting with the text and letting this text dictate the subject. As a result of it, what do we get? Pretty much a um, naggy, yeah. pseudo-law-light thing that really lacked any flavor. Um, yeah, except for the one little, really fast, rapidly moving gospel nugget that was here and gone. Um, yeah, there was no salt in this thing at all. Yeah, yeah, I, mm, yeah. and it was tepid too, you know, kind of lukewarm, you know. Yeah, no, this was not a good meal. No, I, I wouldn't want to eat there again. Yeah. <sighs> Folks, you start with the text. The pastor needs to start with the text. If you were to just preach the text, you wouldn't be twisting this to a leadership principle passage. Begin with the text. Let the text set the agenda. Let the text set the points. Let the text dictate what is preached from the pulpit and let it focus in on focus us in on Christ and him crucified for our sins. Because ultimately, here's the deal. This was I mean an advice-based sermon that sort of takes Jesus and turns him into like the ultimate leadership example. I don't know about you. Actually, I do, but I'll be nice. I don't know about you, but when I <clears throat> compare my leadership um, abilities to Jesus' leadership abilities. Oh man, I am in so much trouble. I absolutely stink at being a leader. Just, I am horrible at it. I mean, that being the case, when I compare myself to the leadership standard set by Jesus. The one thing that becomes really clear to me is that I need forgiveness of my sins. The sins I've committed as a really bad, schlocky, miserably ungifted leader. How about you? And by the way, pulling myself up by my bootstraps and trying harder. Oh, and by the way, I know quite a bit about leadership because it was the emphasis of my MBA, which makes it even more painful to have to come to grips with the fact that I really don't live up to the leadership standards of Jesus. Just not even close. I need to be forgiven and saved. 
for the sins I've committed in my leadership. That being the case, it would have been nice if um, Pastor Aaron had spent some time, some real time, talking about the forgiveness of sins won by Christ for all of us who have woefully fallen short in leadership. And without the gospel, you're kind of left just to yourself to try harder and do better. Good luck. Here you go. Let us know how it works out for you. There's some great advice. I hope you uh, are able to apply it successfully. If you can, come back because we really could use the testimonies to let everybody know how lives are changed by what we're doing here at our church. And if you don't, uh, you know, don't sweat it too much because, you know, you're you're just human. You're not perfect. I mean, God knows that. You know, you know. You see what I'm saying? <clears throat> yeah. No salt. No, no, no salt. And if the church loses its saltiness, what good is the church? What is the salt that we've been given? Christ and Him crucified for our sins. Need to remind you all, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you as well as to the leaderless world out there. You can partner with us financially by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month to Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio course, if you would like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you can do so by clicking on the donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to post office box 508 Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. What'd you think? I'd love to get your feedback. You can email me. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter, my name there pirate christian till tomorrow may god richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by jesus christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins especially your leadership ones amen 